please. The book of Luke will be in chapter 7 today. Luke chapter 7. We've already covered a few things the last few weeks looking at John the Baptist, as I mentioned. It's a challenging study to have. We've been looking at it at Sunday nights. We've been looking at it Sunday mornings. Unless something else changes, the plan is to be here today and kind of bring John's message to a close next Sunday on Easter. But here we find a peculiar passage, one that I think maybe sometimes we've read and have skipped over, coming away maybe a little bit confused for some of what it means, but I want to look at it today. Luke 7, beginning with verse 18. Luke 7, beginning with verse 18. I'll try and read this for us. And the disciples of John showed him all these things. And John, calling unto them, two of his disciples sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or are we looking for another? And when the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist had sent us to thee, saying, Art thou he to come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind he gave them sight. And Jesus answering said unto him, unto them, I'm sorry, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, The dead are raised to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whoever shall not be offended in me. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously Appareled and live delicately are in the king's court. But what went you to see? A prophet. Yea, and I say unto you, much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justify God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against them, saying, uh, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are likened to children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, And saying, We have piped for you a song, and you have not danced. We have mourned, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he hath a devil. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a glutton, and a a wine-bibber, and a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. And so again, there's... Great wisdom and great knowledge in the Scripture, as there is in every part of the Scripture. And we'll look a little bit closer today at some of what is going on. 
Just to remind you of the context here, we see uh, previous in the chapter the centurion's faith that comes before uh, Christ and him healing his servant and then raising a widow's son. So these are miraculous things that are no doubt reported among everywhere. And we see this in verse 16. It says, And there came fear upon all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet has risen up among us, and that God has visited his people. And so this was going around all uh, the land, and everyone was amazed at the things and the miracles that Jesus Christ was doing, doing the power that he had within him to bring people back to life. And no doubt there were many, many rumors and discussions about who he was and what was going on. But during this time, John the Baptist was imprisoned. That's difficult to say. Some uh, believe he had been in prison for about a year at this point. And so it's possible that anywhere from a year to maybe two years, from the amazing proclamation that John got to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and to then baptize Jesus Christ, and John is now sitting in a jail, sitting in a dungeon, knowing likely that his time would be near, and in fact was near. And so some have asked, did John doubt who Jesus Christ was? And many of us have probably wanted to say, well, of course not, because John is the greatest that ever lived. How could he possibly doubt? You ever doubted? You ever been honest enough to doubt? I want to just remind us here, with one exception, that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every man, woman, and child mentioned in Scripture is fallen and fallible. This is not a book about men who were so good that God chose to use them. It is a book about men and women that God chose to use despite their faults and their failings, and sometimes, yes, even despite their doubt. And we are, should be careful to put men and women too high on a pedestal in the Scriptures. He may have begun to doubt. I don't know. But let's not give John too hard of a time. Let's remember a few things. You ready? Turn back a few pages. Luke chapter 3. We read this a few weeks ago. Luke chapter 3, 15 through 17. Here's what John's declaring. And as the people were in expectation and all men mused in their hearts on John, whether or not he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. And he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hands, and he will thoroughly purge the floor and will gather the wheat into the gardener, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Wow. Again, we know that John was preaching the things that God had told him to do, the Holy Spirit having been heavy upon him from the time he was conceived until this time. <coughs> He was no doubt preaching what God had told him to. So the question is, have these things happened? doesn't appear as though they had. What about Matthew 3.10, where John the Baptist proclaims, The axe is ready at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear, produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And if you've ever chopped wood, you know you lay the axe down to measure, and then you pull back in the... Next hit comes swiftly. 
And so maybe is it any doubt that John had begun to wonder, well, the tree's not been chopped down yet. The harvest has not been had. Those who disbelieve have not been cast into ever-burning fire. Where is this kingdom that Jesus Christ was going to bring? Why is it not here yet? Remember, many, in fact, probably all thought that the kingdom meant that Jesus Christ would come and sit on the throne of David and physically rule. I contend that is not to have occurred yet. And I believe Jesus bears that out. He didn't look like a king, Jesus Christ. Lo, there's your Savior riding on a donkey. He's on our bulletin this morning. Meek and lowly. And so maybe, just maybe, John did begin to doubt. Or maybe he was using this as a way of teaching his own disciples who were beginning to doubt. So he sent them to ask. Either way, the great question that we have to ask is the greatest question of all time. Who do you say that I am? Whether John doubted or his disciples did, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters right now is do you doubt or not? Do you know who the Savior is? Do you identify Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world? You see, this is the question that we must ask today. And so John sent his disciples to ask, and they responded, they go to Jesus, and they ask. And I want you to notice something here. Jesus Christ could have very articulately set them down and explained these things. And at different points in time, he did do that. But instead, he chose at that moment to demonstrate through the power of God that rested on him who, in fact, he was. He didn't start with an explanation. See, I have to start with an explanation, don't I? But he didn't. In that same hour... He cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of the evil spirits and unto them that were blind, he gave sight. Jesus Christ, when asked uh, if he was in fact the one, began to do and perform miracles that no one else save God can do. The blind could see, the lame could walk, the lepers were cleansed, the deaf could hear, the dead were raised back to life and the poor had the gospel, the good news preached. Jesus answers by proclaiming the very nature of who he is and by actively fulfilling the prophecies that Isaiah had said would occur. This is why this is so important that we understand that John the Baptist is not just someone that we have to contend with in the New Testament, but we must reach back to the Old Testament and see the thread all the way through. See the Old Testament proclaiming Jesus Christ is coming and John paving that way. Isaiah 26 and 19 says, Your dead shall live again and their bodies shall rise. Isaiah 29 and 18 says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of the gloom and darkness of the eyes the blind shall see, and the meek shall obtain fresh hope, fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35 and 5 says, And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Then perhaps Isaiah chapter 61 
is of great importance. We have read this before. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And just as a way of reminder, in case you had any concern about whether or not Isaiah is talking about Jesus Christ, and because I think it's so fitting for today, we'll go back and read Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there he was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written. Catch this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set them at liberty that which are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down, and all the eyes in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Oh, brothers and sisters, let there be no doubt. The one of old that the prophets had talked about for thousands of years had finally come. And when someone questioned, when John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way, had a question, Jesus Christ fulfilled the very prophecies that he'd been destined to fulfill before his disciples so they could go back and give word to John. This is the beauty of the scriptures. This is why it is a book that is alive because the spirit of God speaks through us. And I can't help and I hope that as you have listened today, with nothing more than just the reading of the scripture, that God has lightened your heart to see the love and care that he has for us, the desire that he has for us and how he worked all these things out. He didn't argue with logic or reason. He simply fulfilled the prophecies about him and said, look what I've done. But then came the answer. I'm back in Luke chapter 7, if you've been flipping. He demonstrated all these things in verse 21. And then in verse 22, And then Jesus answered, said unto him, to the disciples, he said, Go and tell John what things you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And Jesus Christ did give an answer. That's what we've already been told. I've said this for years, many, many times. This is just a little free aside for today. Many, many times we ask ourselves, what is it that God wants me to do for our lives? Brothers and sisters, he's already told us what he wants you to do. To love him with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. To love others as yourself. 
Now, he may and does get specific at times in our lives, but the reality is he has already told us what we are to do. And Jesus Christ is telling John, I've already told you, the prophets have told you, and look what just happened. It's all the more why we need to be in the scriptures to know and understand it. Then verse 23, it says, And blessed is he who, whoever shall not be offended in me. Another translation reads, God bless those who do not fall away because of me. I think the reality is this, that God provides a blessing to those who are able to set aside their personal desires, their personal agendas, their doubts, their expectations, and their fears in favor of our faith in Him. And if you want a blessing, seek after Him. And then in verse 24, let me read, uh, pause there. There's a paragraph marking here. We know that sometimes these are added for context, and sometimes we're able to tell from the ancient scriptures. But regardless, there's a slight change here. It says, and when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak to the people concerning John. And he goes on to really praise John and call into question their motives for why they're there. And something as I was studying this that really made me wonder is, don't you think it would have been helpful and encouraging for John had the disciples stayed to hear this last part? Many, many times, God only gives us what we actually need. And sometimes we don't see the blessing and the excess until far after. And that's another sermon that may come out soon. But regardless, John's disciples had left and Christ begins to address the audience And he challenges them and says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Remember, John was preaching in the wilderness. What did you go out there to see? A reed shaking? If you want to get real loose in this translation, grass growing. Did you go out to be bored? Did you go out to see something common? Did you drive all the way out? <laughs> drive. Did you walk all the way out to the desert just to simply watch the wind blow the leaves? Absolutely not. You didn't go out there to see anybody who's rich and powerful. Didn't go out there to see somebody clothed really well who comes from royalty and all these types of things. No, he says you came out to see a prophet and someone who's more than a prophet, who's the greatest born among men. Why? Because he had the greatest opportunity that anyone has ever been given in this world to look at the Son of God and proclaim there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why have I said that so many times? Because it brings chills to me when I'm truly in the right mind. When I think about the opportunity that John the Baptist had to be the first to proclaim, there he is. We've waited and waited and waited, and here he is. It's also a reminder of what Malachi and Isaiah said about John the Baptist and their prophecies as well. Let's go back to verse 29 where we're talking about the people who are listening. It says, And the people heard him, and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against them, being not baptized of him. 
Now, this makes more sense if you've been here for the last few weeks and listened to the things we've been talking about. But just as a way of reminder, we're talking about publicans. We're talking about those who are the despised, those who are uh, wicked folks, tax collectors, sinners, all the people in society want to cast out and say, those aren't part of us. And the other group, the Pharisees, are the religious elite, the lawyers, the ruling, the people who are important, probably dressed nicely compared to the ones he just talked about. And so he sets up this comparison, and it follows down through a couple of verses. And something I want to point out that's very important, it says, All the people that heard him and the publicans justified God. Another translation reads it this way, All the people... And the tax collectors who heard Jesus acknowledged the validity of God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. We remember John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And so what we see here is that those who were sinners, those who were the worst among the worst, those who were the outcasts of society, had actually repented of their sins, had been baptized, and were believing and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, we must repent and believe. But the rich folks, the teachers, the rulers, the religious people, not so much. Oh, they were interested, but they didn't believe. Oh, they were curious, but they didn't repent because they didn't think they needed to because they had their heritage to save them. And thus we begin a very interesting comparison. Verse 31 through 34. And Jesus tells us, and it says, And the Lord said, Wherein too shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? How different is this today? Let's not get caught up in the fact that this was a long time ago. Let's think about how different things are today. How are we different today? He gives two examples here. He compares these two groups. They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another and saying, we pipe for you and you have not danced. We mourn for you and you have not wept. Let me give this example here. What we're talking about here is this idea there's a bunch of children running around playing, and so they, they, they pipe or play a, a happy song, but nobody wants to dance. And then they go and they play uh, maybe like a dirge, a very sad song, like you would at a funeral, and everyone wants to dance. And Jesus Christ is making a very important point here. No one's happy, and everyone's acting like children. Now, maybe not any of the ones who came down for the sermon this morning, but children who were younger... All of us have been around them and remember when they're just insistent you play this game this certain way, and they're not happy unless you do. Everybody shake your head and smile. All of us can think about this time, right? This is what Jesus Christ is saying. The generation today is like that. I want to do it this way right now, my way, and I'm not going to participate if you don't do it my way. Now, let's get real personal for a minute. As I said, is this not the state of our society today? You will call me by this pronoun or I will throw a fit. You will let me do this or I will throw a fit. I will take whatever I want to from the store without paying for it. I could go on, but y'all just turn on the TV and you'll get my point. Children playing, but no one happy about the game. 
John called for repentance. The sad part. The hard part. The part where we bear the weight of the things that we've done. John was not out having a party. John was eating honey and locusts. Imagine trying to catch enough insects to satisfy you to live off of. That doesn't sound fun. Imagine wearing really rough clothing that was horrible and itchy and hurt and living outside. This again goes back to that comparison of a happy fun song or a really sad one. John the Baptist lived hard. He lived a lifestyle like that because he was called to live like that. He didn't uh, drink or have all kinds of partying. He was a Nazarite. He lived a life that God called him to. And the prophets, I'm sorry, not the prophets, the Pharisees and the people didn't believe him. And then comes Jesus. And Jesus doesn't live that way. I'm not saying he had it easy. But the scriptures tell us he clearly came, he ate, and he drank. He went to dinner with the important people. Quotes. He went to dinner with the unimportant people. He went around and lived life. Now, I understand I'm not saying he went out partying and carousing. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is here and clear in the scriptures. He's saying, look, John the Baptist came. He didn't eat. He didn't drink uh, wine. And you said he had a devil. Then the Son of Man comes, and that's his way of referring to himself, is come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine babbler, a friend of publicans and sinners. Here's the point. Either way, God's messengers were what? Rejected. Nothing either one did appealed to the masses. No matter what style of message, both groups complained, dismissed, and didn't believe. So let me ask this question to make it real personal. How many times have you tried to share the gospel with those you know only to hear, well, if God would do X, then I would believe? Maybe you've thought it yourself, and it's okay if you have. I've thought that before, too. Well, man, God, if you would just do this, then everyone would have to believe. If you just let us find the, the uh, Noah's Ark, then we, you'd have to believe then, right? If you'd just come again, we'd all have to believe. If you just supernaturally do X, if you would heal this person, brothers and sisters, all throughout the years, people after people after people have said, if God would only do it this way, I would believe. And I think this example is telling us Not a chance. God does it the way he does it. It's our job to put our faith in it. But more than that, even more than that, the Pharisees, Christ was claiming, were saying more about him than you might think. Deuteronomy 21 and 20 says, Our son is stubborn and rebellious and pays no attention to what what we say. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And the commandment to Moses, then all the men of his city must stone him to death. As is typical, Jesus Christ knows the hearts and true intentions of people. And what he is trying to express here is not so much that the Pharisees don't, eh, this guy's okay, whatever. They're actually saying the opposite. They're claiming Jesus Christ and quoting part of Deuteronomy. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And what's the response to a glutton and a drunkard who refuses to change his way according to the Leviticus law? Stoning. They weren't mixing words either. 
When you truly understand the things that they were saying to Jesus and what Jesus was saying back to them, calling them a brood of vipers, calling them a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones, we begin to truly understand what they were going through back and forth. And Jesus Christ was making every effort possible to get them over themselves because they were trusting in themselves to be saved. They refused to repent and they refused to believe. Is there anything different today? We refuse to repent. We refuse to believe. And as I mentioned last week, many of those things are missing from many pulpits today. The idea that you must repent and you must believe. And he continues and ends, but wisdom is justified by all her children. I have this one marked from when I was very young because I was confused by this. Another translation has, but wisdom is shown to be right by what results from it. It helps, but maybe only so much. You could put it this way. The soundness of wisdom is judged by the fruit of what results from that wisdom. You see, the leaders took pride in their own wisdom. The leaders thought they were right by essence of inheritance. Well, they were the children of Abraham. How could they possibly not be okay. They thought they were right because they followed the law as best they could down to every little last detail and they burdened everyone else who couldn't possibly do it. But they didn't believe John and they didn't believe Jesus. And so if you look at what wisdom and actions they had, clearly they were wrong. And if you look at the actions going back to verse 31, or before that, I'm sorry, verse 29, and Jesus is saying, look, the sinners believed, they repented and were baptized. Who is right at the end? The outcome shows us. They couldn't identify John or Christ. In fact, They killed Jesus. God is patient with those who doubt, but he opposes the proud. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And as a way of illustration, I'm going to read Psalms 14 and 1. The first part, it says, A fool says in his heart, there is no God. See, it doesn't say the fool says in his heart, I'm not sure if there's a God. There's a difference. The fool is confident and says there is no God. Now, how could you possibly make that claim? Think about it just for a minute, using what human logic we have. How do you know there is no God? You could say, I don't think there is. I'm not sure. But to dogmatically, confidently say there is no God, how do you prove a negative and an absence of a spirit? But those who are puffed up in their own pride, who fully believe this, are trusting in their own arrogance And that's why God calls them foolish. So where does this leave us today? The greatest question as I open that we must ask is whether Christ 
is the Messiah? That's the question. Because if he is, in fact, the Messiah, based on what we know from the scripture, that he is God, he is not just a nice teacher, that he is the only way to God, not just someone who died. When we truly and actually understand who and what the Messiah is, it will be a life-changing experience when we repent and put our faith in him. If we are sure that he is Christ, if we are sure that he is the Messiah, then we should look for and accept no other. None. Now this gets really hard. If we're confident in who Jesus Christ is and that he is the Messiah, that he is part of the Godhead, then we should look for and accept no other. That means that we should not accept money in his place or status in the place of Jesus Christ, or education, or power, or drugs, or entertainment. What are we putting in the place of Messiah? If we are sure that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the prophecy, then we should look nor ex- not look, nor accept anything other, including other people. No other person. If it hasn't been clear for you in the last few decades, there is no president that's going to save this country. And although I kind of like the governor, he ain't going to save it either. Nor the mayor nor the CEO of your company, nor me, nor a preacher or a pastor, nor your friend, nor your relative. We ought not to put anyone else in that place if Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of who he says that he is. And that is God. And we all too often, repeatedly, will put something or someone in the place of God. And so as we come to a close today, I want us to really, really consider this. Consider the things that John the Baptist has asked and the things that Jesus Christ has physically done to prove who he is and then said to show to us the way that we are. And I want to challenge you just for a minute. And we hear this sometimes when folks are struggling uh, with their salvation or concerned about this. Sometimes we think that God has to do something a certain way before we move. You ever been like that? I want to see this and then I'll know you're real and I'll, I'll follow you then. Sometimes that works. Sometimes we're just stubborn. When God called me to preach, a very wise man told me he's not going to call you twice. And he didn't. But what I eventually came to after struggling for months was I needed just one more, just a confirmation. I knew he wasn't going to call me again, but I just needed a confirmation. 
And God used one man with one word who didn't know the situation to confirm in my heart what he wanted me to do, and I gave up. But we must be very, very careful about telling God how he has to communicate with us. Lord, if you will only do this, then I will give money to so-and-so. If you will only help this person, then I'll believe you're true and I'll put my faith in you. This is not an exchange situation. He's the almighty, all-powerful God who made everything there is. He has no obligation to do anything for us other than what he's already done. It is our job to come before him, to fall before him as these sinners and publicans did, confess our sins before him and seek after him and then to let him change our lives and to spend our entire life living after him, keeping him on the throne where he should be in our hearts, not chasing after money or after fame or after a person, but truly seeking after him and surely not being so confident to presume that we think we know what God is going to do or to say. Boy, do we find that a lot. And so as we have a hymn, a time of invitation, I want us to consider these things. What have you put in front of God? What have you demanded that he do before you respond? Because it could be that all Jesus Christ does is point to, what have the prophets said? What have you seen me do? What have you already heard? You know the truth. You know the gospel. I would dare say most of you who are here today are well acquainted with the gospel. You've heard the truth. You've heard what you should do. If you're waiting for some special revelation or you're confident that you know the answer and the answer is there is no God, I think you need to be afraid. And as I opened with commenting that, boy, it seems like the tragedies are coming faster and faster. I don't know if it means the end's closer. I mean, it's definitely closer. I don't know how close we are. It's closer now than when I started a minute ago. I know that much. But brothers and sisters, at a time when there is tragedy after tragedy, when our country needs hope, when we need guidance, when we need to be inspired by the Spirit of God and led in the way, we need men and women who are willing to repent, to seek a true God, and to do what He's already told us to do, which is to love Him. With all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. I'll say it one more time. The night that I got saved, that was the verse that was preached on. And that was the verse that brought me to my knees when I realized I didn't love him. Not the way I'm supposed to. And it hurt me for having let him down. See, that's conviction. And repentance is falling to my knees and begging for forgiveness for having missed the very point of life. And something was different when I got up. It's not been perfect since. I won't even say that I haven't doubted since. Maybe like John the Baptist, but the reality is when I go back to the deep well that is Jesus Christ. When I go back to Isaiah and read the rest of that verse, it goes on when it talks about 
Uh, those who will be coming will be healed. There will be streams of water in the desert. That cool water that is a drink of the Holy Spirit living in your life. It's my desire for you today that you know that.